one of the accusations that those who oppose Christianity, those who dislike the Bible, charge against God is that he is an unfair judge. That he is too wrathful. He is unloving. They see the judgments in scripture, the judgments against the nation, like the destruction of the Canaanites, and even his own people with the exile of the nation of Israel, with the nation of Judah, they think, how could a loving God do such a thing? It is unjust of him. It is unjust, I mean. Such people have a problem also with the concept of hell, a place of eternal conscious torment for those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ, for unbelievers. The concept of hell rubs them the wrong way. We see that again and again in our culture. So you hear such people make charges against God that to send somebody to hell is not right. To send somebody to hell forever where they will suffer is unjust. It's not fair. Now they make such faulty conclusions because they have a wrong view of God. And they have a wrong view of man. Frankly, they have a low view of God and a high view of man. In general, they think man, for the most part, is good. Man is good. However, that's contrary to what we find in the pages of Scripture. Man is not good. Man does not seek after God. Man always seeks after his own interest. Man is dead in his sins. Romans 3, 12 talks about that. Rather, God alone is good. Jesus makes that clear in Luke 18. And so because of their low view of God, when they see God's judgment, they question it. They, apparently from their moral high ground, think it's unjust for God to judge in such a way. Perhaps there are some of you here who think this way or who have such thoughts or these questions that may come up as you're reading through the Old Testament and wonder, why would God do such a thing? Is the God of the Bible really fair? Is he truly just? What I would attest to you is that God is fair. God is just. And he alone is just. He alone is fair. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your 
judgments. God alone is righteous. God alone is fair. God alone is just. And so scripture is clear. God is not unfair. And he is not overly wrathful. He is absolutely just. He is absolutely fair. Yes, his judgments can be intense. And it should cause terror leading people to repentance. But what is true also is that God never crosses the line. His judgments are precise. And he alone, again, is fair. Now we as human, fallen humans, even the best of us, can overreact to the injustices done to us. Take, for example, your relationships with your siblings, with your parents. For those of you who are parents with your kids, we can easily overreact and judge unfairly. But God never does. His judgments are true. His judgments are righteous. His judgments are just. His judgments are precise. And this is what we really see in the book of Amos. This is what we see in the book of Amos, which is one of the 12 minor prophets. And I've been tasked this morning to survey this book. And again, in this book, the message we get is that God is the judge. And he will judge. But we also see the nature of his judgment That his judgments are fair, his judgments are right, his judgments are just. And that no one can claim that he's unjust. No one should ever claim that he's unjust, because he's not. Now as we survey this book, I want to consider two elements. First the messenger of God, the prophet Amos, and then the message of God, that is the fair judgment of God. So let's briefly consider the first element, the messenger of God, the prophet Amos. Who is Amos? What do we know about this man? Frankly, there's very little that we do know, but the little that we know is insightful. He is introduced to us at the very beginning, in Amos 1, 1, it says, The word of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. This prophecy in this book begins with identifying who the prophet is. Now, he's not your prototypical prophet. He's not someone with a religious background. <clears throat> Rather, he is a simple shepherd, a sheep herder from the village called Tekoa, which is about 10 to 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem. And so in a sense, he's a nobody. He's a nobody from the southern kingdom. Amos says this about himself to Amaziah in Amos 7.14. It says, Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, 
nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. See, he was just a normal man, a normal shepherd, a farmer from the south who was called by God to be his messenger. And what was he called to do? He describes it in chapter 7, verse 15. It says, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. He was called to prophesy to the northern kingdom. God called a southern farmer to leave his home, to go to, to a land that was unfamiliar to him, to a major city to the north. It's like a farmer from Kansas going to New York City. Maybe Brandon can relate since he was in Kansas. But he was definitely out of his element. But we see in the rest of his book, in the rest of this book, that he was faithful. He was faithful to his calling. And ultimately, that's a calling for all of us. God calls each and every one of us for a specific purpose. And our responsibility is to be faithful to that calling. Now we also see the setting to when Amos was called to prophesy to his prophetic ministry. Back in Amos 1, verse 1, it says, Amos prophesied in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So this was a few hundred years after the time when the United Kingdom had split around 931 B.C., And at this point in time, Uzziah, the king of the southern kingdom, is king. And he reigned from 765 B.C. to 739 B.C. And then we see Jeroboam is also listed. And he is the king of the northern kingdom who reigned from 785 B.C. to 753 B.C. So likely his reign or... Amos' ministry took place when their reign, the two kings' reign, overlapped. For the northern kingdom, this was a time of great prosperity. It was a time of peace. It was a time of great economic prosperity and military prowess. But such prosperity led to pride. It led to immorality led to injustices. And so this was a setting, a season of peace and prosperity to which Amos was called to prophesy, to preach. He came preaching to a physically and materialistically thriving nation, yet they were a dead nation, spiritually speaking. So this was the messenger of God. Now what was his message. Now this brings us to our second element, and that is the message of God. His judgment. His judgment. The prophet Amos brings a message of judgment to Israel. And frankly, they did not expect it. Things were going good for them from their perspective. So you can imagine it's a surprise. 
But look at verse 2. Amos writes, He said, The Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters his voice. And the shepherds, shepherds pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. Here Amos describes Yahweh as a ferocious lion who roars against those who rebel against him. You see, he is ready to judge. He is ready to pounce on their enemies. And it's a scary and devastating thought because you see the response. It says the shepherds, pastors, grounds mourn and the summits of Carmel dries up. Carmel was a place where Elijah battled the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. It's a place of bountiful trees and lush gardens. But it says that it would dry up. So Amos was there to warn the nation of Israel, as we will see. And he continues in the rest of the book to pronounce these judgments. And what we see is really the nature of God's judgments. Israel will be judged along with the nations. But again, the point he makes, the point he will make is that God's judgments are, un, are just. They're not unjust. They're not overly wrathful. He is right to judge because he is holy. And thus he hates sin. And thus no one should ever say that God is unfair or unjust to judge. So as we continue in the rest of this book, as we survey the remaining nine chapters, I want us to consider three characteristics of God's fair judgment. Yes, he will judge, but we'll see the nature, the characteristics of God's fair judgment. We'll see that God's judgment is an indiscriminate judgment. We'll see that it is a just one. We'll see that it is a precise one. <clears throat> and beginning in chapters 1 and 2, we see the pronouncement of this. We see the first characteristic of this. That is, God's judgment is an indiscriminate one, or you could say an impartial one. <clears throat> In verse 3 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2, we observe eight judgments against different nations. There's eight judgments pronounced. And it's because of sin. Regardless of who they are, whether they're the nations or the people of God, God judges all. And they all will be judged for their rebellion against God and His holiness. And, he and as He pronounces these judgments, they will follow a, for a similar formula he will employ like a, a, a similar pattern. For example, look at verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke his judgment. And this same expression is repeated again and again with all of the other judgments. For three transgressions and for four. For three sins and for four. And what does this formula mean? There is a number, or three, the number three is a number of fullness. It is the limit. So at three, God is saying, you have hit the limit. You have hit the mark. But at four sins, you've crossed the limit. So this is not just the number of sins, rather the exceeding fullness of sins by these nations. The point is the cup is overflowing with sin. And so this formula is repeated again and again to show that judgment is coming to them because they have sinned immensely. God initially begins his indictment by focusing on the nations, as I've mentioned, specifically those around the nation of Israel. These include Damascus in verses 3 to 5, Gaza in verses 6 through 8, Tyre in 9 through 10, Edom in verses 11 through 12, Ammon in verses 13 through 15, and Moab in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2. And you can imagine as these judgments are being pronounced to these or against these nations, you can imagine Israel hearing this and completely agreeing. Yes, God, judge these nations. They are immoral and they deserve your judgment. And the reality is they did. By the way, one thing I do want to point out is by God announcing their sins, it it shows that God knows everything that's happening. He's aware of all the sins that is happening both internally and externally. And God keeps a record. God keeps a record. And thus, why he can come and judge these nations. But Amos does not stop just with these nations. Because it says that God also roars against his covenant people. Shows his impartiality. Both the nations and his people are judged because both or all have sinned. And so he continues with the seventh pronouncement of judgment on the nation of Judah. And what was their sin? Verse 4 and 5 tells us that they had rejected God's law and they had served false gods. They committed idolatry, adultery. And they too, like the nations, would be judged. And we see that fulfilled in in 605 with Babylonians coming and judging them and taking them into exile. Now, if Judah was not exempt, then neither would Israel be. In fact, they were even worse. So we see the eighth judgment pronounced on Israel. And who will be really our focal point for the rest of the book? Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. God said, you too have filled your cup with wickedness and it's overflowing. Verse 6 continues to give us some of the reasons. It's because of their social injustice of treating people of lower class in an unjust manner, taking advantage of them and of their sexual immorality. Look at verse 6. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. And these who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. And they also committed adultery. Look at verse 8. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar and in the house of their God, they drink wine of those who have been fined. And he goes on to say even more that they silenced God's prophets. They made the Nazarites to break their vows. And so this all called for the judgment of God to the nations and specifically to God's people. See, they were held to a higher standard because they were God's people and they had God's law and yet they sinned in this way. They were supposed to be a light to the nations but they were becoming more like the nations. And thus God was pronouncing judgment on all of them. This is similar to what we see in Romans from 1 to 3. For all have sinned. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he goes by chapter by chapter showing how everyone is condemned before him. There's no one without excuse. None is exempt. Because God is not biased. He is not indiscriminate. He judges because sin exists. And he hates sin. He abhors, abhors sin. And thus we see a pronouncement of judgment on the nations and more importantly, his people. Next we come to a second section in chapters 3 to 6. And here we see a second characteristic of God's judgment, and that is that his judgment is a just one. It's just. In this section, uh, in these chapters, we observe also three messages that kind of highlight this. In these three messages, these start off with the phrase, hear this word, hear this word. And we see this formula in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 1, and in chapter 5, verse 1. And these serve as structural markers to mark three distinct prophetic messages to Israel by the prophet Amos. And really by this, by this formula, he's trying to get their attention. He says, listen, hear what I have to say. It's important. And in the first message in chapter 3, 
he shows their guilt. In the first eight verses, he kind of presents a cause and effect relationships, really proving that God has a reason to judge them. In verse 1, he, he, he identifies that this message is against Israel, his chosen people. And though they, they are chosen, they're not exempt. And in verses 3 to 8, there's a series of questions that are presented to show that God, again, has a just cause to judge them. Verse 3, it says, Do two people who walk together, do, do, do two people walk together who walk together unless they agree? You don't see two men just walking around randomly. There's an appointment there. There's a reason why they're walking. There's a purpose, cause and effect. Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? A lion will not roar for no reason. He has a cause. He has caught his, its prey. Verse 5, does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? And so on and so it goes, these, these cause and effect relationships. You see, the bird falls into the trap because there is a bait. There is a cause to why he gets trapped. There's a cause to why a lion roars. He has caught a prey. There's a cause to why two men are walking together. There is an appointment. There's a reason and so God is saying, do you really think I would judge when there is nothing there? Think again. I have a cause. And the cause for your coming judgment is your rebellion, your sin. God's judgment is not arbitrary. It doesn't happen without reason, without purpose. God has a cause. And his judgments are just. And it's fair. Moving forward to chapter 4, we come to a second message. And in this message, we see more of Israel's guilt. And we see God's patience. We see his grace, his mercy. In verses 1 through 5, God talks about the injustices that the nation of Israel has committed. Verse 1, he calls the women cows. This is because of them living in extravagant lives. Lives of riches, luxury. But in their affluent position, they oppress the poor. They crush the needy. See, they, their appetite is to serve themselves. God has a cause. And verse 2 talks about a warning that Amos presents to them to a tragic end if they continue in their ways. Verses 4 and 5, we see their sin of, of false worship, offering idolatrous sacrifices. You see, every time they enter the temple in Bethel, in Gilgal, they would multiply their transgressions. Their whole system of worship in the northern kingdom was set up 
as a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. So right from the beginning, sign of rebellion against God. You see, they weren't worshiping God in the way he had prescribed. They were really worshiping God in the way they wanted to, in their own image. They were worshiping a God of their own making. And thus they were guilty of such worship. And thus judgment was coming. And this is instructive for us as well. And God has prescribed his way of worship. And we see that in the pages of scripture. And we ought to worship him, not in the way we think, but in the way he has prescribed. Moving on to verses 6 through 11. God reminds them of his love for them. How they, how he brought famine, drought, locust, pestilence, and war so that they would return to him. God was disciplining them so that they would return to him. These were warnings for him, for them. But these warnings fell on deaf ears. They did not listen. They were futile. Five times in these verses we see Yahweh declare, Yet you have not returned to me. Yet you have not returned to me. In verses 6, in verses 8, in verses 9, verses 10, verses 11. Even in their rebellion, God in his faithfulness was trying to draw them back to him. Yet they did not return to him. What was God showing by this? He was saying, I gave you these punishment to bring you back. They were designed to see your rebellion. They're an opportunity for you to turn from your ways and return. But you did not listen. Instead, they hardened their hearts. They were unmoved. They thought they knew what was best. And so at this point, there's nothing more, God says, that I can do except one thing. Look at verse 12. He says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare for judgment. See, Israel is guilty. Not not only of their initial rebellion, but also of their rejection of God's grace to them and mercy to them. And thus God is just to judge them. God would have been just if he judged them years ago. But you see his grace, you see his patience year after year, hundreds of years, by the way. Now to show just how just God is, we see in chapter 5 a third message. And again, we see the hardness of the people's heart. In chapter 5, God basically sings Israel's funeral song, you could say. Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. Verse 2, She has fallen, 
She will not rise again. The virgin Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There's none to raise her up. This pictures that Israel is almost dead already, already dead. But even at their funeral, God in his grace calls them to repentance. Again and again, you see the call to turn from sin and to seek him. Verse 4, it says, seek me that you may live. Verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. Hate evil, verse 15, love good. This is a call for repentance. Even at this point, God extends an olive branch to this current generation to repent, even at the very last moment. You see, God is patient, and he gives them ample opportunities to turn from their sin. We see that with Christ on the cross, with the thief on the cross. The very last moment, God offers him salvation. So he's doing that here with them. How can anyone say that God is not fair? When he gives the maximum amount of opportunities for repentance. See, there's no excuse. They neglect this gracious opportunity. They harden their hearts like Pharaoh did. And my encouragement for those here who are not in Christ, this is also a call for you to repent. God is telling you to seek him. God is calling you to repent, to turn from your sinful ways, and to turn to him, to seek him through Christ. God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him through the person of Christ And in his kindness, in his patience, he's calling you to repent and turn to him. So we see in this section that God is a just judge. In chapter 6, we see the reason why they would not repent. It's because of their pride, it's because of their arrogance. They didn't want to submit to God. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe. Externally, they thought everything was going right. So why should we listen to the shepherd from the south? But God was using this messenger to call them to repentance. But in their pride, they rejected God's word. And it was so bad that God swore in verse 8 that their judgment would be certain. He said in verse 8, Therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains. He continues in verses 9 through 11 to discuss the extent of this coming judgment. That will be comprehensive 
that it will be complete. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. And it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Verse 11, for behold, the Lord is going to command the great house to be smashed to pieces, the small house to fragrant, fra- fragments. He will make sure that it happens. He, make, he will make sure that it's complete. And there will be no relenting of this. Verse 14 says, there God says, For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you. This is a prediction of the nation of Assyria who's going to rise to power overnight and come and destroy Israel. This is God's coming judgment of them. And this section really highlights the fact that God had every reason to judge them. They rebelled against God. They did not worship him the way he had prescribed. They did not love their neighbors. They took advantages of them, took advantages of the poor and the needy, But even in that, God called them to repentance. But they rejected that. They neglected that. So God makes it clear here that his coming judgment is fair. His coming judgment is just. He tells them, it's not my fault. I am not being reasonable. Or unreasonable, that is. Israel, it's your fault. Remember the cause and effect. I have a cause to judge you. You have sinned. And in egregious ways. And in the process, I've been patient with you. And I've given you ample of opportunities to repent. But you haven't. Like Pharaoh, you have hardened your heart. And so judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And my judgment is fair. My judgment is just. This brings us to a final section of this book in chapters 7 through 9. And here we see, you could say, a third characteristic of God's fair judgment, and that is His judgment is a precise one. A precise one. We have seen that God's judgment is impartial and discriminate. We've seen that it is just. And finally we'll see, hopefully, that it is precise. That is, those who are judged get precisely what they have earned. Nothing more and nothing less. God is just, he is holy, he is righteous, and everyone deserves what they have earned. And in this section, we see five visions, and we'll briefly go through them quickly. The first two visions of judgment were that of a a locust, or locust devouring the vegetation of the town or city, and the second a fire destroying the land. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Thus the Lord God showed me, that is Amos, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. 
And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. That is, after the king had already taken his cut, the locust would come and devour the land. This is the first vision. The second vision, verse 4, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. After seeing these two visions leading to utter destruction, Amos was filled with terror and he pleaded with God. He petitioned God to not carry out these judgments. We see that in verses 2 and 6. So these did not come to pass because these judgments were too much, too harsh. So why did God show these? I think to show that he could do this. He had the power to destroy them completely. Yes, Israel deserved judgment. And they would receive judgment. But they would receive precisely what they had earned. I think it's the point. God's justice is precise. It is the nature of his justice. It is the nature of his judgments. And that's why in verse 7, we see a third vision. He sees a vision of the Lord standing beside a wall with a plumb line in his hand. A plumb line was there to ensure that the wall was absolutely straight, precise, measured, leveled. The point is he was measuring their sins and they would get precisely what he measured. Nothing more and nothing less. And then in chapter 8, we see a fourth vision. It is a vision of a basket of summer fruit. In the way that a fruit is ripened by the summer heat, the point is here that Israel was ripe and ready for judgment. Verse 2 of chapter 8 says, The end has come near for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The time for mercy was over. I've given them many opportunities. Now is the time for justice. Judgment is at hand. God has waited patiently, but they have not listened. Thus they are ripe and ready for judgment. And to show that God was serious about this, I mean, they should have got that immediately. But to show that he was serious about this, that his judgments that he was pronouncing on them if they had not repented would come into flourishing, we see a fifth vision in chapter 9. Here God says, I will give you a sign that proves that what I'm saying will happen. He says that in the near future, there will be a great earthquake. Describes that in verses 1 through 4. Let me just read verse 1 quickly. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the head of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword, 
They will not be a fugitive who will. There will. They will not be a fugitive who will flee, or a refugee who will escape. He's saying there will be this devastating earthquake in the near future that will come upon the city. There will be an immediate sign for this future judgment that is to come. A future judgment by the Assyrians. And we see that happening actually in, in verse 1 or chapter 1, verse 1. Amos says this. Amos was preached two years before the earthquake. So we have in this book all that he preached happened and then two years later he says this earthquake that he saw in the vision that he prophesied occurred. And that was an immediate sign for this future judgment that was going to come. So believe it. What I'm saying is true. What I'm saying will happen. And I keep my word. This earthquake will be a foreshadow of the judgment by the Assyrians in 722 BC. God is saying, you're right for judgment. You have not repented. You have not listened to me. My word is true and it will happen. And that serves also as a warning for us and an encouragement. God keeps his word. Again and again, we see that. I marvel, I'm amazed the more and more I learn about God's word. I read about the prophecies in the Old Testament, the promises made and how they are fulfilled and the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. I'm confident that it will happen because God is faithful to keep his word, both in judgments and in future restoration, as we'll see. Now, as we close the last few verses of chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, there begins to be this shift, a shift from this coming judgment to a future restoration for the nation. In this dark, terrifying message, God does not leave his people without hope. God says that he will restore his people because of his promises. He is faithful to his promises. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. God says here that one day in the future, and we know this is talking about the future even to us, that God would raise up and rebuild the shattered ruins of David. But not only them, it says also the nations whom he has called by his name. The nations are also his people. And he is drawing his people to him. God's salvation will go out to the nations and they will return to him. They will come to him. Verse 13 goes on to say 
just how fruitful this will be. There will be so much prosperity. Look at verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. There will be so much in the harvest that the reapers will have difficulty collecting all the harvest. And it will even go into the next season. It will overflow. Verse 14 talks about their cities will be rebuilt. Verse 15 talks about promises that once they are planted back by God for the nation, that is, Israel will no longer be uprooted. This has not happened yet. This will happen in the millennium, in the future. But this is hope given to the people, to the remnant. While all this is happening, God is reminding them, I've kept my word. I've promised you this. I will fulfill this. But before this is fulfilled, Israel will go into exile. And then after that, there will be a future restoration that will come. So the point of this book It's really to highlight the nature of God's judgment. God is the judge. And he will judge. But his judgments are fair. It is not indiscriminate. It is, rather, it is indiscriminate. It is just. And it is precise. That is the nature of God's judgment. So what can we take from this book? Some of the lessons I just want to point out. And I've alluded to this again and again. God is the judge. He alone is the judge. And every single person born into this world will be accountable to him. Either we will spend eternity paying for our own sins or if we put our faith in Christ He has paid for our sins. Secondly, know that as the judge, he is fair. He is just. He is fair in his dealings. Everyone gets exactly what they've earned. Nothing more, nothing less. No one can claim that but God because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is just. And this is a right view of God. This is the view of God that scripture presents. And finally, I hope that you've seen even in the midst of the pronouncement of judgment, God's grace, God's mercy, again and again calling people to repentance even at their deathbed, even at the last moment, God is extending an olive branch. And to say that he's unfair is unthinkable. God is gracious. He's merciful. And God desires for all to repent, to come to him. 
And lastly, hope you see the seriousness of sin. Help us. I ask that we would hate sin more and more. I pray that we would be more and more sensitive to sin. I know we're not perfect. But I pray that each and every one of you guys would know God's word more and more and desire to live a holy life in accordance to his word and abhor sin in the way he does. I'm not saying we'll be perfect, but that there's a trajectory in your life that you are conforming more and more to the image of Christ. Sinning less, but every time you sin, oh man, it bothers you. I want to close by reading Psalm 119, 137 again, talking about the justice of God, how just he is. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Let's pray. Father, we just thankful for this book. We just thankful for your word. <clears throat> There's so much in this book that we can discuss and talk about, Lord. We're just grateful um, that you've given it to us. And I pray that that you would help us to grow in our understanding of it and have a right view of you and see that you are a, you are the judge and that you are a righteous judge. And Lord, that we would just fall on our knees and worship you for just how great you are, how good you are, how righteous you are, how holy you are, how fair and just you are. You hate sin so much that you sent your son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of those who would ever believe in him. Thankful for how just you are. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your mercy. And help us to grow in our understanding of that reality and just be led to worship. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.